Wilderness is not a luxury, but a necessity of the human spirit, and is vital to our lives as water and good bread. A civilization which destroys what little remains of the wild, the spare, the original, is cutting itself off from its origins and betraying the principle of civilization itself. Edward Abbey, from his 1968 autobiography, Desert Solitaire. Welcome back to Dead and Gone in Wyoming, a monthly podcast telling the stories of this remarkable state's most enduring murders and disappearances. I'm Scott Fuller, and coming up on this month's episode, one of the rarest of wilderness adventurers, immensely skilled and forever cautious, and his cautionary tale of humility and passion for the uncontrolled and uncontrollable Great Wide Open. The Sinks of the Sinks Canyon gets its name as another word for the caves and caverns made by the water rolling over immense limestone for hundreds of millions of years. The Paposia River, derived from a Crow Indian phrase, which cuts the canyon on the southeast edge of the Wind River Mountains, then disappears into these caverns and caves. And the water takes two hours or more to come out the other side, a quarter mile downstream, into an area called the Rise. The canyon is littered with impossibly sized boulders, which are actually the newer additions to the landscape, having been transported from mountaintops by enormous glaciers during the most recent ice age, which ended 10,000 years ago. Sinks Canyon has aided in the understanding of North American geology as much as any other place in North America. But there are geological mysteries there still, and probably always will be. Some areas of the sinks have never been explored or seen by anyone. This part of Wyoming, and Lander especially, has been defined by the Sinks Canyon and its creator, the Paposia, for all of modern time. The indigenous population was naturally drawn to the Sinks Canyon, well before it was even so named, for the shelter it provided from the notorious Wyoming winds, and for its ample wildlife for generations. The city of Lander then took a front seat in later westward expansion, the gold rush along the Oregon Trail. Even the Mormon religion is etched into the history of the Sinks Canyon. Unlike countless other places, Lander managed to survive the boom and bust of the railroad era. Lander drew its first electrical power from the Paposia through hydroelectricity in the early 1920s. The 27-foot-tall Christmas tree placed at Main and Broadway in Riverton, commemorating the war-torn December of 1940, was hauled down from the Sinks Canyon. Modern conservationalist philosophies of game and fish and wildlife management for the entire state, seem to have emanated from the hunting and fishing restrictions within the Sinks Canyon, which have been in place in some fashion for the last 80 years. By the 1950s, though, the secret was out. Outside of Yellowstone itself, locals and tourists alike were encouraged to drive Lander's Circle Road, as the Loop Road was known back then. Some of the history of the Sinks Canyon might surprise people who have grown up very near it. Eight years before my own grandfather helped found the now infamous ski town of Vail, Colorado, the same concept had been proposed in Lander's Sinks Canyon. In 1958, construction of a single ski tow rope began, with plans for a ski lift to follow. But downhill skiing in Sinks Canyon ran into a few barricades, more than a few. Limited money, dwindling volunteers, liability problems eventually brought about its demise. 
and downhill skiing hasn't been there since the early 70s. Although remnants of what might have been remain, the ski warming house still stands, and what was the ski slope is now a popular sledding location. Lander's economy, as it turns out, would not benefit from the silly money enjoyed by places like Park City or even Jackson Hole. But take it from me, that's probably for the best. And I think the original Wyoming Cowboy would bear me out on that. Clayton Danks, a three-time winner at the Cheyenne Frontier Days, before serving as Fremont County Sheriff, which is Lander in the surrounding area, for nearly two decades. And that was after he served as Sheriff of a different county in Wyoming. But one of Lander's most famous alumnus and Wyoming's most iconic cowboy may never have been at all were it not for a chance visit to Wyoming in 1896. Clarence, as he went by back then, was originally from Nebraska, where he dabbled in rodeo as a young man, but after visiting Wyoming, he never went back to Nebraska. And with apologies to any Nebraska listeners, it's not difficult to understand why. Clarence rode Bronx under his middle name, Clayton, and his first ever win was at Cheyenne Frontier Days. Some called it luck, though, because he'd avoided drawing Steamboat to ride, a black gelding with a reputation for being an impossible horse. Unfazed and looking to prove his skill, Clayton requested Steamboat on his next ride and rode to victory. Clayton would ride Steamboat several more times over the following years. One of Lander's most famous residents, Clayton Danks, is that anonymized silhouette of a cowboy that you see in Wyoming's brown and gold state symbol. And you can guess who the horse is. As for Lander, it's become world-class in its own way, while also maintaining a unique mountain culture. It's rich in Western history and modern amenities, with a children's museum and novelty outdoor experiences like the annual one-shot antelope hunt. Its population relatively exploded in the 70s, but has leveled off since to about 7,000 people, not including the tourists and outdoor enthusiasts who flock to it at all times of year. Lander may well be now what Moab, Utah was 20 years ago. Part of me hopes that's not the case, that the people who really need to know about Lander already do and the rest can stay away. Some people, though, people like Clay Rabano, can't stay away. Clay's eventual arrival in Lander, Wyoming, might have been by way of the rest of the world, but it seems to have been inevitable. So Clay came to Lander and went into Sinks Canyon in 2007, and he never left. Clay Rabano went on a hike in Wyoming on November 10, 2007. Clay failed to report back to work as scheduled two days later on Monday, and on Tuesday, November 13th, a full search was underway for the 46-year-old, who is an instructor at Lander's National Outdoor Leadership School, a job he'd just taken after serving as a park ranger in Montana, which is where his wife, Rachel, still was. Clay was a newcomer to Lander, so new his wife hadn't yet joined him at the home they'd bought together. November 10th was a Saturday. Clay and his wife, who was also a park ranger, and so was still living in Montana for the time being, had spoken by phone on Friday night. At that point, Saturday's day hike into the mountains around Lander was just a seed in Clay's mind. He wasn't sure he was going to go, but he did mention to her that if she couldn't reach him the next day, it was probably because he decided to take that walk into the woods. Which is, of course, what happened. The weather was too nice that day. Clay's wife called the house once, then twice on Saturday, and then again in the evening, but received only the answering machine in response. 
And so a perfect storm of sorts was brewing in spite of the sunshine. Clay's wife would be out of communication range herself all of Sunday. And so no alarms were raised when the two hadn't connected all weekend. It had been at least 48 hours before anyone knew that Clay Rabano had failed to return from the Sinks Canyon. When Clay didn't arrive at Knowles, his colleagues drove to his house. Not finding him there, they drove up Sinks Canyon. Clay's car was immediately located at Bruce's camp, about 10 miles outside of Lander, which is the parking area at the bottom of Louis Lake Road, or what's known locally as the Loop Road. Bruce's camp is the last stop before the road switches back a half dozen times, eventually to Fry Lake, two miles above. No before-you-go signage of the Bruce's Camp parking area advises travelers on the loop road of various hazards and the wildlife that might be encountered, as well as a map of the area. The road can be at least partially snow-covered for nine months out of the year, and by mid-November, high temperatures in the area are usually in the 40s, can easily dip to below zero at night. It would not be unusual for several inches of snow to fall on top of the several inches that were already in place for the season, but in November of that year... It was different. There had been no snowfall at all that week leading up to Clay Rabano's planned hike. High temperatures, although still below freezing at night, were consistently in the mid-60s during the day. The calendar might keep your novice amateur hikers indoors, but Lander is a well-known recreation location in the Cowboy State. Thousands of people jump off into the wilderness from Lander every year. It boasts everything for everybody. You can glamp with electricity and cell phone service, or you can jump into the wilderness on a 10-day solo backpack. Some of the best fishing in the western U.S. and some of the best rock climbing in the world can be found not far from Lander, Wyoming. And so with so many venturing back millions of years in time into evolution, and yet so far removed from our instincts and practice when it comes to the wild, it is not a surprise that people go missing in the mountains around Lander. Quite a few people, actually, every year. They're almost always found alive, and relatively soon after being reported missing. Along with world-class sites and outdoor experiences, Lander has a corresponding world-class search and rescue network. Lander SAR can launch a search for a missing hiker, four-wheeler, or camper practically immediately. Dozens of volunteer searchers can aid local law enforcement if necessary, deployed on horseback with dogs on ATVs, and even by air if necessary. As I've said previously... It may be the best place in the country to get lost. So it's not strange that someone was reported missing from the mountains around Lander, especially in November of 2007. But it was pretty strange that Clay Rabano was reported missing. As a Knowles instructor, Clay Rabano was by definition a lifelong expert in the area of outdoor adventure. As a fourth grader, Clay had become bored one day with the itinerary on a 4-H hike that he was on and decided to wander off to explore a nearby river, entirely by himself. His terrified instructors eventually found him, no worse for the wear and perfectly safe. Clay Rabano never forgot that experience, never stopped walking into the woods. He'd been a whitewater rafting guide and kayak instructor in Colorado, Utah, and Honduras. In Antarctica, where he'd meet his future wife, he was a member of the United States Antarctic Program, coordinating transportation and communications across the harshest continent on the planet. As a park ranger at Glacier National Park, Clay would solo for dozens of miles without encountering a soul, save the occasional grizzly bear. Mexico, New Zealand, San Diego, and a dozen other places in between prior to Lander, Wyoming at age 46. 
The average person would not be advised to wander into the Lander Mountains alone any time of year, especially not November. But Clay Rabano was not average. He'd survived multi-day solo backpacks through the most treacherous terrain in the Rocky Mountains. Terrain that was frankly much more perilous than Sinks Canyon. While still traveling 10 miles a day, and he'd do this for a week at a time, this was Clay Rabano's calling, being by himself in the woods, experiencing the outdoors with friends. So for Clay, a day hike in Sinks Canyon, it's like a Sunday morning trip to Starbucks for most of us. But that was only partly because Clay was an experienced adventurer, and some would say even a world-class adventurer. To people like that, safety and preparedness are of utmost priority. Lessons learned from decades of close calls and all his experience in the woods guided Clay on what he needed to bring on any adventure of any size, and sometimes just as importantly what not to bring. But recreation, to call it that, at that level, also makes you realize something else. Full preparedness, full safety, isn't possible. No matter how itinerized your route is or itemized and purposeful your packing has been, situations can arise quickly for which you didn't account. That would discourage and maybe terrify a lot of us for good reason. Not Clay, though. You see, Clay Rabano could have been pretty much anything he wanted to be in his life. He possessed skills of diplomacy and teaching. He was curious and easygoing. He could have made a lot of money doing a lot of different things. But the reason Clay Rabano spent his life in the woods is because things would go wrong. It would be reckless, of course, to invite chaos or danger in the face of the humbling and awesome power of the outdoors. But Clay had sort of an acceptance of the inevitable unpredictability that is inherent in any journey. He embraced that. He grew to love the unexpected. As Clay would say, unexpected life changes drop people into expedition mode on a daily basis. So the point is the process, and the process is the point. You should, you absolutely have to prepare. But preparation is not only meant to prevent bad things from happening, because they're going to happen. Preparation determines how you're able to respond to that adversity when it inevitably arrives. So on the trail, as in life, you can have all the supplies you need. You can know exactly where you want to go and how long it might take to get there. And then your plans change instantly. This is a fact of human existence. And that fact is not something that most of us deal with well. Clay embraced it. Like, I don't know what made me think of this, but Coltrane. John Coltrane, starting out with a melody that everyone knows. And then wandering off the trail onto his own path. So after he failed to report to work at Knowles on that November Monday morning, searchers went off looking for Clay Rabano. They knew this about Clay. He liked to make his own path. He was more than experienced enough to go off trail and explore, which doesn't make the search and rescue effort any easier. But the good news was that Clay had reported to some, including Rachel, about where he was headed on that day hike. But a growing contingent of searchers had little more than that to go on. They had no idea how far he'd actually gone or even what supplies he had with him. They knew two things he'd brought with him but didn't have with him. A jacket and long underwear were left behind inside the car. 
presumably because of the unseasonable 60-degree day when Clay arrived at Bruce's camp. But beyond that, it was left to Rachel to attempt a reverse inventory of what searchers might be looking for in the field. Did he take his tent on the day trip, just in case? Which clothing did he pack? What color? How many water bottles? What did they look like? If there was any material possessions that Clay had a lot of, it was hiking and wilderness supplies. So this proved to be a much more difficult task for Rachel than you might think. The man owned six headlamps, three pairs of hiking boots, countless windbreakers and sweatshirts that were all left behind at his house. How could Rachel specifically tell searchers what they were looking for? But Rachel wasn't home yet. She was still a 12-hour drive from Lander. And so she first asked someone to check the answering machine at their new house for the messages that she'd left the weekend before. She wanted to know if they'd been played, because if Clay had played them, she reasoned, then he'd returned from his Saturday hike safely, and maybe his absence could be otherwise explained, or maybe he was somewhere else. So Clay's Knowles colleagues did just that. They drove back to Lander, where they found Rachel's messages unplayed on the answering machine. When Rachel arrived in Lander from Montana after a nonstop and tormented trip, she was absolutely dismayed by what she found left behind at their new home. Clay's camelback, his water filter, his tarp, his tent, his sleeping bag were all still at the house. Clay was not. Which meant only one thing. The search for Clay Rabano would be different. Clay wasn't a weekend ATV rider up from Denver. He wasn't a middle-aged fisherman from Ohio with a twisted ankle. Their task was to find a wilderness expert, a professional outdoorsman, who possessed a healthy respect, but absolutely no fear, of the elements. That made the efforts to locate Clay more difficult, and so now did the weather. The days were getting shorter, the nights colder, but Clay's friends, and especially his wife Rachel, held out hope that Clay might walk out of the woods at any point. Not entirely an unreasonable hope in this case either. After all, if anyone can survive out there... So Rachel pleaded with local authorities to leave Clay's car where it was parked at the trailhead. If he did make it out, he'd need a way to get home. So that's where the vehicle sat for the next few days and then few weeks. In the meantime, the car was very helpful in other ways. Police were investigating at this point. They'd been able to determine that the only fingerprints on the car were Clay's. By then, in an increasingly anxious and surreal state, Rachel was being brought items things that were found by the 100-person ground search of the Sinks Canyon in the hopes that she might be able to identify this or that as an item of her missing husband's. But she recognized none of them. As quickly as the search had begun, time very quickly ran out on the late season, and the search for Clay Rabano was called off. Clay's Subaru was eventually removed from the trailhead parking lot and impounded. It fell heavily on Rachel to retrieve it, still without any answers or semblance of closure. And so it was Rachel's job to drive Clay's car home. And these are the poignant moments that those of us who don't live or haven't experienced this rare nightmare fail to understand or to even contemplate. Places and possessions become extensions of people, at least to the people who care about them. And when they go missing, in their absence, those places and possessions become ghostly. Those favorite things of the missing become haunted in their absence. And in driving her husband's car a short one mile from the impound lot to the new Lander Wyoming home that she never really had a chance to share with Clay, Rachel wrote this. I quickly became aware Clay's things were heavier than normal things. 
When I finally consented to having his car removed from the trailhead, I went to the impound lot to retrieve it. I mistakenly went alone. I was not prepared for the heaviness that would wash over the streets as I drove home, making the one-mile trip feel like a journey of thousands. I didn't know a Subaru could drive through such viscous air. I gave his car preferential treatment, parking it in the one garage space that we had. It was months before I drove it again. I left the clothes he chose not to hike with right where he'd left them on the car floor. I was sure I couldn't lift them. And when I finally did carry them inside months later, that one trip of a few yards exhausted me and was that day's sole accomplishment. His things had grown in importance as well as weight. His toothbrush, shoes, journals, clothes, camping gear, indeed all things clay, needed to stay where he'd left them. Moving them felt like a betrayal, an admission to the universe that maybe he wasn't coming home. So I concocted a story I hoped might be true, involving a whopping case of amnesia, a deerskin teepee, and a finely honed ability to lasso bunnies for food and pelts. Maybe as absurd as that purgatoristic hope of a heartbroken wife might seem to us, it would only be an impossible hope if it were directed at the rest of us. Fair to say, more than 99% of the population would not last a couple of days in Clay Rabano's apparent situation, but once again, if anyone could survive a winter in the Wyoming wilderness. The loop road where Clay's car had been found is typically closed for nine months out of the year, so any hope of what might have happened to the newest Knowles instructor would need to wait through winter, and beyond spring even, into the summer. It took seven months for the winter's snow to melt enough to make another search effort possible. And when that second search was launched in June, it was discovered that Clay Rabano had abided by another motto on that last hike he took. His personal motto, when in doubt, go higher. On June 8, 2008, Clay Rabano's possessions, and eventually his remains, were found in the Sinks Canyon, outside of Lander. A team of searchers discovered Clay about six miles from where his car had been, near Sheep Bridge on the middle fork of the Papoja River. Clay was found in a remote off-trail area, and indications pointed to Clay's falling from some height, 75 feet or more. Rachel's flickering dim light of hope was extinguished on that June 8th. Crashing down around me, she wrote, now in the dark reality of forever gone. There's no way to know for sure exactly when Clay Rabano died, but given the state of the remains and his apparent fall, it's a safe assumption that it was on that very day that he'd been last seen, well before anybody knew he was missing. That cliff over the Papoja is a near-vertical sheer rock face. To climb up it would be a challenge even for the best in Lander, which you're probably aware is saying something, and to fall down it would be, it seems to me, impossible to survive, and you probably wouldn't want to survive it anyway at that point, but according to the coroner, Clay did survive the fall. The official version states that Clay probably crawled a few yards from a location where his car keys were found to a location where his backpack was found. Evidence of food items seeming to have been opened by a human and not torn open by animals seems to suggest that Clay survived maybe a few hours before dying, his remains later being scattered by scavengers. Rachel, though, doesn't think so. She thinks the same evidence indicates that her husband died immediately on impact, and the discrepancy of the few yards between the keys and his bag can be explained by separate arcs during the fall and then movement when they hit the ground. Those neatly opened packages of food were Clay's lunch on top of the cliff before he fell, as he took in the fall seasons of the Wind River wilderness from a perfect vantage point 
of a sun-soaked rock above. With her parents, Rachel summited the same cliff that her husband had, snapped photographs, and it's easy to see why Clay had chosen that spot that day. The valley below in November would have been on fire with the orange and yellow of the aspen trees. We don't know what happened. Maybe Clay twisted an ankle when he stood up to go back to his car. Maybe he tripped. Maybe a bird swooped in too close and startled him, causing him to fall. Or maybe he was dead or dying before he landed. A brain aneurysm, a heart attack, or something else. There is no way to know. Some of Clay's ashes were spread on one of his favorite whitewater rivers. Rachel and a few friends watched as Clay swam away forever. Rachel still wears her wedding ring. Its companion is still somewhere in the Sinks Canyon. And the last long hope that Rachel holds on to is that one day it might be found by a hiker or a camper or a climber. Odds are, though, it will stay right where it is and disappear like the Papogia into the Sinks, where it will remain for the next few million years. Sources for this episode, the primary source for this episode, was an article that was authored by Clay's wife in Proximity Magazine. That was Rachel Jenkins' first ever published writing. Thanks as well to various historical societies and local chambers of commerce in the Fremont County area for providing their resources online to tell the story. If you enjoy the show, tell a friend. Thanks for all the emails and story ideas. You can get in touch with me, as always, at wyomingpodcast at gmail. Same goes for Twitter, at wyomingpodcast. That's all the time we have for this episode. For everyone at County 10, I'm Scott Fuller, already looking forward to bringing you the next episode of Dead and Gone in Wyoming.